Welcome to the Wild Wisdom Podcast with Dr. Patricia Mills. I'm Dr. Patricia. This podcast is for people who want to transform their health, restore their hormones, and reconnect to their body's natural wisdom. Hi, I'm Dr. Patricia. I'm a Canadian medical doctor, published author, internationally recognized researcher, and passionate advocate for your health. Here, we'll explore the intersection between ancient wisdom and cutting-edge science, distilling the essence of true health into practical steps you can take. Wild wisdom is instinctive knowledge in action. Thanks for making this part of your day. Do you use occasionally or frequently anti-inflammatory pain medications like ibuprofen, naproxen, and dimethicin or aspirin? Or maybe you're on an antacid for heartburn or acid reflux. Maybe you've taken or are taking antibiotics. If you have and you do, this show is for you. Welcome to the Wild Wisdom Show. I'm Dr. Patricia Mills, a holistic medical doctor with a root cause spin on health. And today we're going to be going deep into common medications that harm your gut health and what to use instead. So I do not give you a problem without a solution. That is my promise to you. And today, not only are we going to talk about the conditions that necessitate these medications and in terms of what you can do to reduce or eliminate the need for these medications that we're going to cover, uh, I'm also going to go into what you can use instead. And this is important because when it comes to certain medications, they are absolutely necessary, like for pain control, right? Or if you have reflux or you need something like an antibiotic. Um, so it's not that you're going to stop using medications altogether and suffer. It's what can you use instead that's a safer alternative for your gut health. So when I talk about gut health, it's important to understand that you can look at gut health in different ways. And one way to look at it is you're looking at your digestive power, like how good your gut is at breaking down nutrients and absorbing it. You're looking at the health of the gut linings, so the skin that lines the gut and uh, allows the nutrients to get into the body, but keeps out the toxins and the infections and that kind of thing. So the health of your gut lining and the health of your gut microbiome. If you have, if you don't know what the gut microbiome is, it's a collection of microorganisms, tiny organisms living in your gut, bacteria, fungi, parasites, viruses, and you want a healthy gut microbiome uh, because the gut microbiome is like the community inside of you that helps keep the, the health of your digestive power and the health of your gut lining. So that's their job in your gut. Um, so we're finding out more and more about the importance of the gut microbiome. If you haven't heard about the gut microbiome, go, if you're, go to YouTube and check out my gut health playlist and you'll see a gut microbiome video that's very descriptive, surprising ways they support our whole body health. And if you're listening to this on podcast, it's my most recent episodes is what you want to go to. And it's important for you to understand because when we talk about the concern with certain medications harming your gut health, some of these concerns have just shown up in the past two years in terms of how these medications can harm your gut health. And I just want to say um, hi to, um, I think it's Michaeline Miranda. Hi. And she says she's a doctor and she, oh, she, hi, doctor. I'm so excited to learn. I am so excited to have you here with me today, Michaeline. And if you have any questions or for anyone who's watching, please put your questions in the chat and I will be sure to address them for you. That's the benefit of showing up live. 
All right, so let's get into the three categories. And remember, I'm not going to give you a problem without a solution. So you have to stick to the end of this episode so that you don't leave this halfway through feeling disempowered and not sure what to do. By the end of this, you should know exactly what to do um, to control your pain and to, you know, what to do with your heartburn and what to do when you're on antibiotics if you have to be on them. All right. Okay, so the three categories of medications that really harm your gut health are number one, over-the-counter anti-inflammatory medications like naproxen, ibuprofen, aspirin, indomethacin, silicoxibs. Number two are antacid medications for things like heartburn or acid reflux, as you may know it by, or gastroesophageal reflux disease, GERD. And number three are antibiotics. Right. And remember, I'm not saying you're not going to you're going to stop taking these medications. I'm going to teach you how to do this wisely. All right. So let's go into the first category, these over the counter anti-inflammatories. And in in medical terms, they're referred to as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory NSAIDs, N-S-A-I-D-S. I'm blanking on the D. And what is important to know about this is that NSAIDs are belong to the most frequently used drugs worldwide. There's over 30 million people taking them each day. And I have to tell you that there was a point in time in my life where about, you know, five days a month for my period pain, when I used to get really bad period pain before I healed my hormones and restored my gut health, which interacts with the hormone health, right? It's all interconnected. I used to have terrible period pain and I had to take um, uh, I took naproxen or ibuprofen for five days in a row at, you know, throughout the day, just chewing them, you know, swallowing them um, to deal with my pain. Also, as a medical doctor, as a specialist in physical medicine rehabilitation, I used to prescribe these medications to people who had everything from lower back pain to osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, uh, you know, any kind of pain condition that responded to anti-inflammatories. This was a very common prescription too. And now that I know exactly the damage that these medications do to our gut health, I would approach this differently. Should I prescribe this to a patient again? And I'm going to teach you how it is that I would do this differently. And remember that every medication has a potential to harm your gut health, either through your digestive power, the health of the lining of your gut, or the health of your gut microbiome. Um, and what we're going to show here for you is that there was actually a study in 2023. So, like, I'm currently, if you're watching this as a replay, this is October 2023. This study was just recently published. And what they did is they took people who had been on naproxen as part of another study. So there were two trials where people were on naproxen and anti-inflammatory for pain control. And they scoped all of these patients. So the scope means that they take a little camera and they go into like through your nose or through your rectum and looking up and down your body, like the gut and looking at the gut lining and they're looking for evidence of damage to the lining of the gut. And what they found was that 25% of these people had ulcers and the people who had ulcers didn't necessarily feel any pain. They could be painless ulcers, but even an ulcer that doesn't, you know, cause you to experience pain is a problem because these ulcers, ulcers are like, breakdowns in the skin like erosions in the skin so if you have like an ulcer on your skin like on your hand or your arm basically the top layer of your skin is gone and you're left with the under 
underlining and the function of the skin is changed. So the function of your skin at that local ulceration is changed. And if you ulcerate deep enough, you start to get bleeding because you start to then erode the lining of your blood vessels so you can get bleeding in, in of the lining of the gut. And if the bleeding is high up in the in the gut, like in the esophagus or the stomach or the small intestine, it'll make your poo turn black if there's enough blood in there because the blood um, turns black, oxidizes with time. Or if the bleeding is lower down in the large intestine, then it's like a bright red blood in your stool. So the stool is either black or bright red. But you can have what's called microscopic microscopic bleeding, just tiny little amounts of blood leaking out and you don't see any changes in the stool. And what they found was that 25% of people on this medication had damage to their gut lining and not all of them felt it. So the doctors are, you know, the researchers are giving them this medication and 25% of the, of the participants were having damage and the, and the researchers just talking to them couldn't be able to tell who had damage and who hadn't. All right. So this is really important. And I'll never forget, I was doing my surgical, like uh, during my re medical residency training, I spent a lot of time on the surgical wards because um, part of my rehabilitation would be to help people rehabilitate after surgery. And I remember that there was a doctor who would do abdominal surgery and, and you know, I got a chance to go in and, and assist him in the surgeries. It was fascinating to actually look at the gut inside the belly and see how it looks like and how it functions just anatomically. And I'll never forget, he said this, he said, you know, whenever I have a patient who's been taking anti-inflammatories like pretty regularly over a period of time, they all have scarring in their gut. Yeah, he would open it up and he would see scarring because the ulcerations you know, they have to heal, but they don't heal. Sometimes they don't heal totally normally. They heal with scar tissue. And when you start to get scar tissue in the gut, it definitely affects your gut health in a negative way. I think we can all agree on that. So, um, you know, what is it that we're going to do to replace the anti-inflammatories in your life? Should you be taking them? I'm going to cover that, but I still want to talk about um, this first mechanism is that the first mechanism as to why this could happen, like why is there damaging, uh, like why is the gut lining being damaged? And one mechanism is it's changing the gut microbiome. The medication, when it goes into your mouth and into your gut, it's changing the gut microbiome. It's killing some of them, which allows other, others to flourish. So, for example, if I have a community and we have like, you know, some janitors and some taxi drivers, some doctors, some lawyers, some teachers. Um, it's kind of like it kills all the teachers, which allows more janitors to take up the space. Like, so then you get more janitors. So although janitors are important and teachers are important, you want them in a certain balance and the medication kind of changes that balance. What we don't know is it for better or for worse, but we're seeing that the long-term effects of these anti-inflammatories are not good so we're assuming that these gut microbiome changes are for worse. And this is a study, again, that just got published in 2023. So we're just beginning to understand what happens. And they're showing that it's happening in animals and humans, this gut microbiome change. The second mechanism of damage is damage to the gut lining itself, right? The erosions. And actually what's fascinating is that they show that there's stages of damage. First, it causes the gut lining to get leaky. 
like a coffee filter that is supposed to be intact and allow just the nutrients through and keep the crud out, you start to get like little tearing of the coffee filter. Like the gut is like the coffee filter and it's getting little, little tears and it's just starting to get more leaky. Uh, we call it leaky gut in social media and, and the doctors call it increased intestinal permeability. And that leads to inflammation in the gut. And the, the medical term for that is gut enteropathy. And then, and colitis, that those are kind of like the terms for dysfunction of the gut as a result of this inflammation. And then that can progress to ulcers, bleeding, and scarring. So remember those patients, those 25% of people taking the medication, getting the ulcers, there's probably more of those those participants that were actually developing like leaky gut and inflammation, but you can't see that on a scope. That's not something that you can necessarily see on the scope, right? That's really important to know. And that is a 2018 study that um, discusses the mechanisms of damage to the gastrointestinal tract. And if you're listening to this at, on a podcast and you want to get the references for my research, you want to go onto YouTube and watch the video because in the video, I put, I put the PubMed ID, PMID, which allows you to go into PubMed and search the articles that I'm referencing. Okay. So now, next, I'm going to talk about which of these medications in the research was found to be the safest options. So if you're on an anti-inflammatory like ibuprofen, naproxen, endomethacin, uh, um, um, aspirin, you know, I'm going to tell I'm going to teach you how, how which ones to choose and how to use them in the safest way that I found according to the research. OK, and then I'm going to give you alternate options um, that are just as effective for pain control, but are not non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Okay, so that's going to be important. First, I just want to take a look here, um, looking at the comments. Uh, Michaeline is saying, I applied what I learned from you about gut health and endometriosis diet and supplements, and so happy to report it has helped with my symptoms. Oh my goodness, that is such good news. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's so nice to know that these shows are making a difference in people's lives. And I appreciate you showing up and, and sharing that information with us, Michaeline. And there's another Facebook user here that's saying, hi, thank you for the information. Hi, you're very welcome. So glad you could join me today. All right. So let's look at the safest options. Okay. The safest options in terms of um, not negative, like the least effect on your the health of your gut lining and your gut microbiome appears to be what are called COX-2 inhibitors. And you would know this by the name of Silicoxib or Celebrex, and that's what's available in the U.S. There are other uh, COX-2 inhibitors that are sold in other countries like Etericoxib or Arcoxia is the um, brand name, or Paracoxib, also known as Dynastat. And the thing is that these are meant for short-term use, okay? So if you're having like an acute, like a short-term pain condition, like a really bad menstrual pain or, you know, a flare of lower back pain or your osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis is flaring really badly, you would use this for short-term. And what do I mean by short-term? The safety study done on this in terms of the gut microbiome was celecoxib. 200 milligrams twice a day for 10 days. And this was studied in postmenopausal women, and they found that this did not elicit a change in the gut microbiome. And it's generally accepted that as long as you use these medications for less than 10 days at the lowest dose possible, that you're minimizing your risk for side effects. Another exception is low-dose aspirin. 
Now, low-dose aspirin is, um, you know, a little bit controversial because it is being prescribed for prevention of like heart attacks, especially if you've already had a heart attack, right? Secondary heart attack prevention. And it appears as though, you know, as long as you stick to that lowest dose, which is around 80, 81 milligrams of, of aspirin a day, you're really minimizing your risk um, for side effects. So um, this is important to know because a lot of you will be getting that recommendations from your from your doctors. And we don't yet really fully understand what is a long-term impact on the health of the gut, the gut lining or the gut microbiome. But, um, you know, in terms of a risk-benefit ratio, it's probably beneficial to be on that low-dose aspirin, should, especially if, if you already had a heart attack. Um, so just keep that in mind. I don't want people to freak out and stop all of their low-dose aspirin, right? So that is kind of in its own little special category. But in terms of ibuprofen, naproxen, and domethacin, um, you know, either you ideally will switch to, um, you know, a, a COX-2 inhibitor, like the ones I've mentioned, for short-term use only. And then you're going to say, well, what do I use if I need to be on this long-term, like I've got rheumatoid arthritis or I've got osteoarthritis, I need to be on this long-term, or maybe I do have menstrual pain and I don't want you to use these anti-inflammatories uh, because even short-term, they can cause a little bit of damage to the gut health. Um, and so what I'm going to talk to you about is evidence-based alternate options. And these are very powerful. And I want you to you know, keep an open mind to this because um, this has also been studied in research and it's the use of boswellia and turmeric in medicinal doses together. So what I want to teach you is what is boswellia and what is turmeric? Boswellia or boswellia serrata is basically frankincense. It's the resin of the boswellia tree. And we're familiar with frankincense from the scriptures, you know, and, and the Bible. It's considered to be a very important, um, you know, um, you know, natural molecule in, in uh, like religious terms, but also in nature, it's extremely powerful as an anti-inflammatory. And it actually acts on the anti on the inflammation pathways, so the pathways that cause inflammation and dampens them down and sometimes even stops them. So it's like cutting down, turning down the volume or cutting down the inflammation. Similar to COX-2 inhibitors, except they belong in the in the lipoxygenase inhibitors, the LOX inhibitors. Um, so that's really important to know that it has actually been studied specifically as an anti-inflammatory. And turmeric, we're more familiar with, that's the powdered rose, uh, rhizome, the powdered root of curcuma long, uh, longa, um, so cur curcumin. So, but when we're talking about turmeric in this case, we're not talking about the kind of turmeric you put in your food. We're talking about medicinal doses, which I'm going to teach you about. So Boswellia on its own has actually been shown to work in inflammatory, chronic inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, chronic bronchitis, asthma, ulcerative colitis, and Crohn's disease. And by the way, if you have endometriosis and you're experiencing endometriosis pain or fibroids and fibroid pain, um, given the mechanism of action of Boswellia and turmeric, this should work for um, improving any inflammatory pain as, like Michaeline uh, did, you work on all of the root causes of that said endometriosis or fibroids or whatever condition it is, right? So the, un the underlying assumption is that you're going to be working on the root causes of the condition, why you're getting the condition, just like I had to work on the root causes of my menstrual pain. 
But in the meantime, as you deal with the pain, you have to have options, right, for pain control. And we want the best, healthier options. And what we know is that when you take Boswellia and turmeric together, it is very effective for short-term pain. Specifically, it's been studied in menstrual pain. And it's been very effective for long-term pain like arthritis. And this, when I say arthritis, I mean all arthritis, osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. It, it's been very effective. So I'm just going to highlight a few studies just to kind of, you know, show you the power of this. This study, again, published in 2023. This stuff is super recent. It's so cool. It's hot off the press. You know, in, in the old days, it would take 20 years for this research to make it into clinical practice. But with this kind of social media, um, you know, surgence and, and spreading of information in this way, you're getting this information now. So this is amazing. I'm so excited for you. So this was studying the effect of turmeric, boswellia, and sesame. The sesame was the sesame oil that they put into the capsule. Um, apparently, the, the when I read it, the researcher said that sesame oil had been studied for uh, with good effects in uh, menstrual irregularities. To be honest, I'd never heard of that before. So I'll have to look into that a little bit more. But the pain um, effects, the anti-inflammatory effects were from the turmeric and boswellia. And they did this really cool um, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study. I mean, it's the highest quality kind of study that you can do in research. And they gave women, um, so they basically what they did is they, had, they, they took women who had what's called um, <clears throat> dysmenorrhea, painful menstruation. And they asked them um, for a week before they expected their period to get off of all of their supplements, all of their pain medications to be basically supplement and medication free. And as soon as they started experiencing pain from their menstruation, they started charting like out of zero out of 10, 10 being the worst pain possible and zero being no pain where they were at. And they were told then when they, that when they reached a five out of 10 pain, so, you know, my pain scale is five out of 10 to take a dose of this turmeric boswellia um, uh, capsule. And uh, they didn't give the exact dose though. So I'm gonna be talking about that, like what I would recommend since they didn't give us the exact, exact dose because they're doing, they're trying to like create a patented formulation, right? So we have to kind of work around that, which I'll teach you. And it was fascinating. They found that compared to not taking any turmeric boswellia um, sesame um, capsule, that the mean total pain relief of the treatment group was 12.6 times better than the no treatment uh, group, the placebo group. I mean, that is powerful. <laughs> Can you imagine? So it was very fascinating. And it was just one dose. Okay. So my suggestion, you know, if I had period pain or if, it, if, it, if I still had period pain from the past or it came back again, this is what I would do. Um, I would start taking boswellia and turmeric together as soon as I started experiencing any period pain. I personally wouldn't wait until I got to the five out of 10 because these supplements really work just like pain medications. They work better if you start taking them as soon as you start experiencing the problem. And then I would take them three times a day. So for example, um, to make your life easier, because I get a lot of questions after these shows, like what do I use and what do I recommend? Um, I put in the show notes a link to my full script account, which you can register for free. And if you use the link in the show notes, it'll take you right to the plan for turmeric and boswellia. And I chose two very good quality and well-priced supplements. And I look at the ingredient list. I don't want any weird additives that can harm your gut health and harm your gut microbiome. And I don't want it to be too expensive. So I'm looking at that, like the, that kind of merging of things. And I put them in that plan 
Um, and I like that method because if I find a better option, then I can just go into Fullscript and change it there, right? So if you're watching this 10 years from now, for example, and you go into Fullscript, it'll have my updated favorite options, okay? And if you choose to purchase through Fullscript, awesome, you get 10% off, I get a small commission. But if you don't, if you want to go to your local health store, just take those recommendations with you and ask them if they have that or something similar with good quality um, ingredient list, okay? So, for example, the one that I have right now is uh, has is Boswellia at 333 milligram tablet uh, capsule dose, and the turmeric is 400 milligrams. So, if you were to take uh, one of each, like one Boswellia, one turmeric, three times a day, um, that's how I would take it, and then I would stop taking it um, after about you know 24 hours of being pain free. Okay, so it's not so much that it's going to completely obliterate your your menstrual pain or your your acute lower back pain from a, a muscle strain, uh, you know, it's going to soften the, take the edge off and in some cases maybe completely take it away, but you might get a little, like a little bit of it, but the hope is that it significantly decreases the pain for you, okay? So then the question is, what about long-term use? So if I'm going to use it for something like osteoarthritis where the pain is every day or rheumatoid arthritis or chronic lower back pain, you know, what am I going to use instead? Okay. And so um, what I'm going to say here is that uh, first, I just want to again, get into my Colleen. Uh, she's saying, yes, yes, and yes. I wish so badly there were more doctors like you. I'm going to check your full script for which ones to get because I know you are quality loyal, not brand loyal. So important. Oh my goodness, my Colleen, this is not scripted. And you're saying all the, all the best things. I appreciate you so much. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Um, so let's get in here. Let's do the um, long-term use. So fortunately, there is some research on Boswellia and turmeric um, showing uh, like a, a, a like a long-term use, but not lifelong use, right? Because some people, and we're going to talk about that, like how can you then use this lifelong um, safely? Because the thing you have to understand is that these are powerful supplements. So they also can come with some side effects that you have to really pay attention to, right? Because we're taking them from nature, we're concentrating them and using them at higher doses. That's what I mean by medicinal doses. So it's not the kind of dose you would get from sprinkling turmeric in your food or using it in your curries. This is this is higher dosing, right? So for example, turmeric has been studied, um, you know, 500 milligrams three times a day. Like that's one of the higher doses of turmeric. In osteoarthritis, there was a study Again, I have the PubMed ID here on YouTube if you want to check it out. And it was three months of a low-dose turmeric and boswellia. So it's only 89 milligrams of turmeric and 120 milligrams of boswellia, plus a little bit of vitamin D, 1.9 micrograms. And they found that it was very effective for osteoarthritis pain, and it didn't come with any side effects during those three months. So then the question is, well, what if I want to use it for longer than three months? Well, Boswellia has been studied um, in doses up to 1,000 milligrams a day. So that 333 milligram tablet that I have in full script, you could take it three times a day, according to this research, for up to six months. And that's, that's how long the studies have been run. It's hard to run studies for longer than that. It's very expensive, especially in things like Boswellia, where there's no patent, right? In, in, in those doses for that duration of time, it usually doesn't cause major side effects. But for some people, they have reported some stomach pain, some nausea, some diarrhea, some headaches, some reflux. So if you start to experience problems with that, you know, do, do the same thing as you would with a medication, like cut down the dose or cut it out, give yourself a break, right? Reassess, 
Maybe this isn't for you. Maybe you took it for too high a dose for too long. Okay, so be wise with it. Don't just take it and don't pay attention to your body, right? Really listen to your body. That's important. And turmeric has also been studied um, for about four up to 36 weeks duration of a dose of 120 milligrams up to 1500 milligrams. So, you know, that that one on full script, you know, three, uh, one tablet three times a day, um, up to 36 weeks, no significant side effects either. So then the question you might be having, which would be totally appropriate, is like, okay, well, I have a long-term inflammatory pain condition like osteoarthritis or arthritis or chronic lower back pain, and I don't want I don't want to just stop and have no pain like medication at all, right? So what can I do? Well, this is a suggestion of like what I would do if I had these conditions. I would basically uh, start off on both of them for about three months and then stop one for a, uh, a month while I'm on the other one and then get back on both. And after two months, stop the other one. So you're kind of like pulsing so that every two months you go off of one for a month and then off of the other. So you're, you're, you're basically taking turns between the two because they have different mechanisms of action. They both work well on their own. They're just more effective together. And it allows your gut a break from, from each one every three months for a month. Okay. So you may need to re-listen to this. It is, it is hard to explain it um, just using words. But basically, I would be, for example, on turmeric and boswellia for three months. Then I would stop boswellia for a month while I'm still on turmeric. Then I'm back on boswellia. Then I'm on turmeric and boswellia again for another two months. And then I stop the turmeric. I'm still on boswellia. And after a month, I go back on the turmeric. I'm back on turmeric and boswellia for two months. You see what I'm saying? You're, you're pulsing it. And I'm, this has never been studied. No, there's no research to support what I'm what I'm suggesting I would do. What I am saying is that we are trying to be, um, you know, rational and use logic around how we understand these things work, and and also like the long term effects of using NSAIDs every day um, has been studied, and that does cause damage to your gut, to your kidneys. You have a high risk of kidney injury being on it long-term. And it's even advisable on those medications to come off of them and on of them, you know, like to pulse them as well. So we're using common sense. Sometimes we'll never, we'll never have the research to tell us, um, what to do in this scenario of long-term use of anything, because, it's very hard to do this kind of long-term research. So in the meantime, we have to um, use the safest approach that we have, right? Given the circumstances. Yeah. And um, uh, Michaelina is saying, uh, make sure you're eating nutrient dense foods, preferably organic to avoid more inflammation from chemicals and not just relying on the supplements. You can't live on supplements alone. A hundred percent. And I'd like to go back to my comment before, which is to say that um this is, you know, I do a lot of work educating you on root cause solutions for your conditions. So I will continue to educate you on how to, you know, get to the root causes of osteoarthritis, root causes of rheumatoid arthritis, root causes of period pain. And again, in the meantime, I don't want you to suffer with the pain, right? And definitely having um, specific diets for these um, conditions can be very helpful. Now, this brings us into... Um, the sorry second category it says category three my mistake it's the second category which is antacid medications proton pump inhibitors also known as pentoprazole omeprazole all of the azoles 
And uh, any medication that suppresses your stomach acid production. So if you've had a problem with heartburn or acid reflux, maybe it's yourself or a loved one or a child or a baby. I mean, this is starting to become very common, unfortunately, in today's society. And um, I'm actually going to be doing a deeper dive on that. All right, because we need to stop that from happening and actually reverse it. It's very important. And the problem with these antacid medications is that if you actually look at the label of these medications, like if you if you buy the medication, you pull out um, the label, you know, the the pa- little paper that has all the description, the black box warning, you know, all that kind of stuff. It says on these medications, and I invite you to do this if you if you're on them and you're purchasing them. Next time you have a box, just read the whole information and it says, do not, we do not be on this medication for more than eight to 12 weeks, period, maximum. Why? Because these are known. The doctors know it. The pharmacists know it. Everyone knows it, that the people creating these medications know it. They, they harm our gut health on over the long term. So what their purpose, the reason they were initially created is if you have, uh, if you start to get acid reflux and it's starting to actually cause inflammation in the esophagus or even an ulcer in the stomach lining or what's called a peptic ulcer um, or ulceration in the esophagus, then you need to get that um, under control very quickly, right? So you use the antacid medication so that the ulcer can heal, the inflammation can heal However, in the, the ideal scenario is that in the meantime, you are re- identifying the root causes of that heartburn and working to, re- to address them so that you can reverse the heartburn. And this is possible even if you have what's called a hiat- hiatus hernia. So there are different reasons for heartburn. Some of them are lifestyle, diet, um, eating patterns, um, stress, uh, and anatomy. And for each one of those, there are actually things you can try and do to reverse and treat your heartburn so that you can then come off of that antacid medication and not be on it for any longer than absolutely necessary and definitely not for, for not more than eight to 12 weeks. Why? Because the mechanism, the first mechanism of damage is caused because of the decreased acidity in the stomach causes a decrease in your digestive power. The stu- The acid in the stomach is crucial for various reasons. Number one, it breaks down your protein so you can absorb protein and you need the protein for good nutrition. Number two, it activates certain nutrients so that they can be absorbed in your body like vitamin B12. And number three, it kills invading organisms like E. coli and Staph aureus. All of these uh, infections that we come into us through our foods, through our drinks, from the environment, the acid in the stomach is supposed to kill these things and the acid in the stomach makes the subsequent part of the, stu- the the gut, which is the small intestine. So you have the esophagus, the stomach, the small intestine, and then the large intestine. And in the small intestine is um, supposed to be less gut microbiome, like less organisms growing because it's slightly more acidic from the stomach acid, like kind of leaking down into the small intestine. And the pancreas pumps out fluids to kind of neutralize the acidity, but for a while it's still more acid and it's good because the gut microbiome being lower allows better absorption of nutrients in the small intestine. Okay. And so what happens is that what we've discovered is that when we decrease that digestive power for too long, longer than eight to 12 weeks, for example, you start to actually get effects on your, um, the status and the health of your body. So there was a study done in 2022, very recent, 
looking at the long-term use of a specific proton pump inhibitor, omeprazole, but the, but the mechanism of action is the same as pentoprazole and the other azoles. So you can just take that to be the same for those other drugs. And it looked at the effect on the, on the uh, hematological and biochemical parameters in humans. And what they found was that humans who were on these medications long-term had anemia. They were more likely to have anemia because they have, they're having a hard time um, breaking down the nutrients so that they can be absorbed. They had low iron, low vitamin D, low calcium. They're more likely to have problems with liver function, and they were li more likely to have higher cholesterol. So it messes up with your, with your gut health and digestion. The second mechanism is, as I mentioned before, is that decreased acidity in the small intestine, you start to get gut microbiome overgrowth. So the gut microbiome starts to grow into the small intestine, and especially candida seems to be a problem. So in 2023, <laughs> there's a study that looked at people who had been on proton pump inhibitors long term, and they found that they were, had an overgrowth of fungus in the small intestine, candida, which is not good. That affects your whole body health, having excess candida. And the thing is, um, you, your doctor, your family doctor cannot test for this. You can only test for this in a research setting with like more, more fancy tools and equipment. So you could be sitting there at your home listening to this and saying, how do I know I have this problem? I've been on an antacid for long term. How do I know I have an issue with this? What I can tell you is that you, you probably do have some kind of a problem with your gut microbiome and your nutritional status as a result of being on this medication long term if you've been on it for any longer than 8 to 12 weeks. And I'm just going to say this now because it needs to be said. My father was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, at the age of 58, and we had no family history of it. And at the time, it completely dumbfounded me because he was seemingly healthy. But what I found out afterwards, like it's one of the reasons why I started doing more root cause medicine research, and now I'm in the space of holistic health, is because he had been on a proton pump inhibitor since the age of 12. I did not know this. And to be honest, before I went down this road of further education, um, you know, continuing medical education on, on my, in my own areas of interest, which is root cause medicine, I, I wouldn't have thought much about it. I would have been like, okay, I guess that's what his doctor thought was best to do. But now I know that that probably, I mean, I don't know, I will never know 100% for sure why he got ALS. ALS is a terrible fatal disease with no cure. He died within five years where you progressively lose all of your muscle function because certain neurons in the brain and the spinal cord start to die, the ones that control and, and uh, are responsible for muscle function, a function, the arms, the legs, the speech, the swallowing, everything. It's, it's terrible. It's a terrible disease. And for him, and I think many roads lead to Rome, so to speak, there's many ways you can get this condition, like the genetics may load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger because we had no family history, clearly. And um, what I what I think happened was that he was he had years of like, you no, know, you know, problems with his digestive power not being optimal because of the medication. No one helped him figure out the root cause of his heartburn. So he continued to have to use the medication because he continued to have heartburn. Right. and. For him, um, he was also an Ironman competitor, so he did a lot of excessive exercise with the background of, you know, de decreased digestive power, and he ate a lot of, um, you know, he would eat healthy during the day, but at night he would just have tons of ultra-processed foods like microwave popcorn. Even during the day, he would have ultra-processed ultra like ground soy meat, 
that if you look at the ingredient list, there's like 20 ingredients, half of which are chemical food additives, you know, and he would eat that every day. So there's many factors that probably contributed to him developing this condition and his genetics predisposed him to have ALS versus Parkinson's versus multiple sclerosis versus dementia. I think that's how the genetics plays into it. Um, but what I have to say is that there are multiple studies showing the harmful effects of being on these medications long term, including in children. I found this study and it scared the bejesus out of me. It was in kids and it was in 2023. And it was um, it was called the proton pump inhibitor use and risk of serious infections in young children. And because of that lack of digestive power and ability to protect the body against incoming infections and the internal infections of the gut microbiome becoming, um, you know, overgrowing and the wrong kind being in the wrong place and too much amounts, they found that these kids had increased not only gut infections, but they had increased kidney infections, so urinary tract infections, uh, lung infections like pneumonias, and brain infections like meningitis. Oh my God, you know, like it just, it, like it breaks my heart, right? And so I'm just taking a moment here. Um, Shay uh, Sabalos is saying, doctor had me on omeprazole 40 milligrams for over a month. I feel that it led to the massive hair loss I experienced. Do you think it's possible? To answer your question, it is possible. Whether or not it was the root cause, we will never know. But it does induce some nutritional deficiencies that could lead to hair loss. Melody is saying, I wish you could be my doctor. I need holistic health and root cause assistance badly. Oh, Melody, I wish I could be your doctor too. And um, thank you for being sorry about my father's condition and passing, I know. And the gratefulness that I have for what he went through is that this is why I'm here now helping you. So, so thank you. And I know that he's, wherever he is, he's very happy that this is the course that my life took. Um, and if it required his sacrifice, then he was the kind of guy that would have done it willingly. So thank you. Um, so they found all of these terrible, like increased risk of infections in children, and it can also happen in adults, but I'm highlighting the kids because, um, you know, a family member reached out to me recently and their little baby is having reflux and the doctor's solution was to put the baby on anti-reflux medication. And, but the second step was not there, which is to say, why is this baby having reflux? We, you know. Like what, what is the cause? Is it anatomical? Is it positional? Is it the food? Is it a food intolerance? Right? So that worries me because without the root cause uh, angle and like, you know, the root cause solutions, then you're, you could be on this medications for life. Like my dad and starting as a baby, I mean, you're setting yourself up for a lot of problems. And now the third category is antibiotics. So I actually had meningitis as a child a bacterial meningitis, I almost died. And if it wasn't for antibiotics, um, I would not be here today. So I, I am not an advocate for no antibiotics. I am an advocate as, as our pharmacists and, you know, doctors for the use of antibiotics when absolutely medically necessary. And we're getting better at this. There was a time when antibiotics were just being thrown around and even given for virus infections, like a, a cold, like a chronic viral illness. The thing about antibiotics in the setting of a chronic viral illness is that antibiotics do in the short term kind of lower a little bit of inflammation in the short term so they can make you feel better, but they're not actually um, treating the infection. The infection will eventually go away on its own. That's how viral infections are supposed to work, although some do have long-term effects. But the antibiotics will not 
prevent those long-term effects from happening because those are from the virus effects, not any kind of bacterial effect, right? So part of my training, I remember in, in uh, medical school and residency was, was teaching us to try to be very specific with the kind of antibiotic we used. So, you know, if we took a culture like a swab of the throat or a swab of the, you know, a gut culture, a stool culture, something like that, try to be very specific with the antibiotic that we use. So the thing is that sometimes we can't avoid them, but the problem is that they kill the gut microbiome. It's antibiotics, antibiome, and it doesn't discriminate between the good guys and the bad guys. So sometimes it'll kill your good by your good guys too. And so some people will be left with a post-antibiotic gut issues like diarrhea, might be constipation, some bloating, irritable bowel syndrome can happen after antibiotic use, some low-grade infections in the gut like the candida overgrowth, um, and inflammation. So you can have gut inflammation afterwards as a result of the anti-gut microbiome effects of the antibiotics. But I am going to teach you how to um, minimize this damage from happening and even reverse the damage from happening, right? So this is very, very important. Um, and what we're saying here is that uh, Michaeline is asking here, um, since the babies get part of their microbiome from mom, could thing, could babies suffer from things caused by the mom's diet? And the answer is that yes, it absolutely could. So that is something that we're going to get into for sure. Like what can we do to prevent and reverse problems with um, heartburn in babies all the way through to adults? So what I want to talk to you about is what, how to avoid the problems of antibiotics if and when you have to take them. Like if you go into hospital, chances are you're going to be put on an antibiotic, especially if you're having surgery for something. So whenever you go in for surgery, it's, you almost always get like one dose of antibiotics. And that the purpose of that is to try to decrease the risk of you getting an infection from the surgery itself. So um, if you've been in surgery or going into surgery in the hospital, then you, you know, this is something you definitely want to pay attention to. Or if you or your child gets prescribed antibiotics, research multiple, multiple studies have shown that when you use probiotics, which are supplements that contain these organisms, bacteria and fungus, pr primarily bacteria, some are fungal supplements. Um, when you take them uh, during the use of the antibiotics and after, or, you know, if you, if you took the antibiotics in the past and you're noticing problems with your gut health, if you start taking it now, it takes about two to three months for it to have effect, but taking the probiotics prevents, if, if you take it with the antibiotics, it prevents um, uh, problems as a result of the antibiotics. And if you take it after the antibiotics for about three months, it helps recover the gut microbiome, okay? And there are multiple, multiple, multiple studies proving this. There was just one study that did not show an improvement in the gut microbiome. So when you have hun you know, tens of studies showing improvement and you have one study that doesn't, you know, as a researcher, we're taught to take away the outlier, especially if there's just one. So um, this is a 2012 systematic review and meta-analysis, which means that they looked at multiple studies and they looked at all the results. And when you take the probiotics during and or for three months um, after, so for example, let's say you had surgery last year or you took antibiotics last year for some kind of pneumonia or ear infection or whatever, and you're like, you know what, I feel like my gut health just has never been the same before uh, since then. Then you could, um, you know, if, it were, if I were you, I would take um, probiotics for three months. Um, and it shows that around the two month to three month mark is when you start to see the most beneficial effects. Um, so it does um, speed up and assist um, gut recovery. 
So what I'm going to do is for the next episode, and if you're watching this and you have any questions, definitely put in questions now, okay? Because there's a delay between you putting in your question and me seeing it. So if I don't answer your question, it's because I didn't see it in time. Um, so the next show is I'm going to teach you how to address the root causes of heartburn and acid reflux or GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, all the same thing, different words to describe the same thing, so that you can avoid the use of or get off of your antacid medications. Okay. And this is so, so important. I, I really cannot say how important this is. So um, tune in for the next episode. If you're catching this live, it'll be next week. If you're catching this on replay, um, you know, I'll, I'll always put it in the gut health, anything to do with gut health, I'll put it in my gut health playlist on YouTube. And if you're catching this on a podcast, it'll be the next episode. Okay. So I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much for everyone who joined me today. A special shout out to Michaeline for all of your wonderful involvement and uh, Shay Cabellos. I appreciate you for showing up as well and participating. And I, and Melody, Melody, can't forget Melody. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you all next week. Have a wonderful rest of your day, evening or night. And if you're watching this, you know, please be sure to subscribe and share because sharing is caring and we need more people um, with this kind of empowering information in their hands so that they can start to experience their best health. See you soon. Bye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast, Wild Wisdom with Dr. Patricia Mills. If you like this podcast, please take the time to like and subscribe. And please feel free to leave any comments and look below for the contact information if you want to connect with me directly. Thank you and I hope you have a wonderful day, evening or night. Hi everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for a professional care doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided with the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you are looking for help in your journey, it is important that you seek out a qualified health practitioner. If you would like to work with Dr. Patricia for her expert health transformation guidance, please email her at info at drpatriciamills.com to book a discovery call. You can also find Dr. Patricia on Instagram at Dr. Patricia Mills and Facebook at Wild Wisdom for Women with Dr. Patricia Mills, MD. For access to all of Dr. Patricia's educational videos and more amazing perks, consider becoming a Patreon member. Links are in the description of this episode. It is important to have an expert in your corner that can help you make the changes you crave, especially when it comes to your health. Thank you.